We've been talking as a, as a church about our, our values and really just wanting to have a, a season where we just all make it very clear about what are those things that mean so much to us, what are the, the ideals and the beliefs that underpin everything that we do. And also in speaking them out, where are the gaps? Because we don't just want to be people who say good things and it doesn't match our behavior. So by speaking it out, by being very clear in what we're saying, we want to make sure that our behaviors line up with our, our beliefs. So I've been going through a season looking at that um, because really we want a wholesome, healthy culture um, that just matches up what we believe God's been showing us. And God's been showing us so much for quite a while. Um, and we've spent some time looking at the manifest presence of God. Just what does it mean when God is, is present with his people? We know God's present everywhere. But what does it mean when God's actually present with his people and seeing the miraculous happen amongst us and all the many ways in which that can be outworked? And uh, don't you love technology when you lose your place? Um, and so we've been doing that. And now we're going to do a few weeks looking at honor and I'm both excited and daunted about unpacking some of this, so I'm going to do uh, an introduction and, and a bit of a, a broad brush over the topic of honor amongst us. Um, and I'm really excited because I'm very passionate about this. I'm quite daunted because um, it, it's huge and it's, it touches everything. And a lot of people think they know about it. I think I know about it, but the more I study what honor means, the more I realize we barely understand it, let alone know how to implement it. Um, and so I'm not coming as an expert, but I'm coming as someone who's passionate and someone who I think carries some of what God's been showing us. And there are many aspects to the word honor, and we're going to look through this and hopefully unpack a bit about what that means. And, and sadly, like many words that we use, um, sometimes they're misused. And we can go through a, a avoiding using a word because of the baggage it might contain. And because sometimes honor has been sort of a bit hierarchical, you will honor me. Um, and, and that's sort of almost a demand and a requirement. And that's not what honor means, but it's the way honor has been used. But we can shun a good word because it's been misused. And we want to not lose the blessing that comes with a word. And it is all about culture. What we want is not, as I said, just good words that we can sign up to, not a list of beliefs that we all can tick a box with. But culture is that thing that is amongst us that when you live in it, you're not really aware of it. Um, that the culture is just your normal. People coming in will say, oh, this is different. But you might not be aware of it. And that's good in one sense, but if you're not aware of what your environment is like, it's sometimes quite hard to see what's good and what's not good, what could be changed and what would be better if it was dealt with. And so going through this season sometimes feels a bit clunky, we're repeating things, we're going over things and perhaps laboring things. But our contention is, is that by lifting these things up, we can then look and reflect at how do we do, how do we line up with what we say we believe. And, and then we can see a wholesome, healthy culture develop from that. Because we are convinced that we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another and that this is the journey that we've got on. And if you look at the life of Jesus, our great model, then he did everything that he saw the Father do. So he had that connection with Father. He was constantly reflecting back to what he saw in Father and then he represented the Father to us on the earth. And, uh, and we, we have the written word, but as um, Hannah so helpfully said a couple of weeks, weeks ago, the Greek words that are used for what we translate in the Bible as word, the word of God is either logos, the written word, 
but it's also rhema, the spoken or inspired word. And we need both of those. And when Jesus said in, in Matthew 4, verse 4, it's written that man shall not live by, every, by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the rhema word, every daily inspired spoken word. It's that constant hearing God and responding to that is where you know, God calls us to live from. And so it's out of that context that we're going and looking through these things and seeing what God is saying. So, a um, bit of introduction about why I'm here. Um, I like when I'm looking at a word and seeing if I can understand a bit more about what it means. I like looking at a dictionary. And so I've got a, a dictionary definition. So the verb honor means to highly respect, to greatly esteem, to value, admire, defer to, or think highly of. So that's quite good there. I think my favorite of that is value. If you just put the word value in whatever time you heard the word honor, that would get you a long way to understanding what I believe God's saying to us. The Bible uses the word honor. That's always reassuring, isn't it? Um, Exodus 20 verse 12 is the Ten Commandments. And um, uh, I'm not sure if Gideon's going to try and do this. We we have an amazing projector team. You have a very small projector team. So if anyone wants to come and help them, but Gideon and the the others who do that do just such a a really helpful job. Both, I I don't know how they do that in worship, get the right verse up. You know, where's the worship leader going? And they've got the right verse or the right chorus. So thank you, Gideon, for doing. Um, So the verses behind are in the New International Version. Um, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, so forgive me there for causing confusion, but hopefully it's the same same meaning. So this is one of the the Ten Commandments, and it says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And just looking up some of the Bible dictionaries about what honor is used in there, it really does say prizing them highly, highly prize your parents. care for them, show affection for them, show respect, fear, or reverence. And just that notion there, that honoring your parents, it's not about obedience, it's not about that hierarchical, I've said it, you must do it. That's not what honor means, but it is that thinking highly of, caring for, prizing, revering, recognizing all that they carry and responding well to that. Another good verse, Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another, with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Now there's a verse, isn't it? And what I love about that verse is that um, it says one another twice. And one of the big, big keys for me in looking at honor is the mutuality. It's me to you and you to me. It's not about one way. So if something feels one way, I strongly suspect that isn't honor. So when we're one anothering, where we're looking for the best in one another, and I'm looking for the best in you, and you're looking for the best in me, that is a culture of honor. So outdo one another in showing honor. So am I going to be better at honoring you than you are at me? Mm, That's a thought, isn't it? Um, John 13, verses 34 and 35. I love this verse. It doesn't actually mention the word honor, but I think it encapsulates everything that we, we understand. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. There's another one another there. Just as I've loved you, so you are also to love one another. There it is again. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's that concept, really, that one anothering, looking after, honoring, blessing one another, does us good, 
But more than that, this is a place where the kingdom of heaven is demonstrated to the world around us. And it's this aspect that I think excites me more than anything else, that yes, it'd be great to be in a healthy environment where we all think we're great, and we all tell everyone we're great, but that's so little if that's our understanding of what honor and a culture of honor does. It's what happens in that place that then allows the miraculous, then allows the kingdom, then allows other people to benefit from it. Um, a couple more verses I'm just going to look at, um, and then we'll have a, a story, actually. I think you'll enjoy. Um, Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for selfishness. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And really this concept that love is what honor means, that honor is a way of expressing love. Um, and if it's not through love, then it's not honor. And this culture that we're looking to develop is because we value freedom. We value each one as unique and individual. If God gave his life for me, and he knows my good bits, my bad bits, my bits that need to be developed, and yet he gave his son as a sacrifice for me, how much more can we honor one another when we see that in one another? And yet, no one's going to be like me. I know you'd all love to be like me, but uh, you know, no one is going to be like me. And how boring would life be if we're all identicates of one another? But this, in, this idea of diversity is implicit in us all being unique creations. And we sometimes have such a small view of God, such a small view that he can only cope with people who look pretty much the same. And you might be a little bit different, but you've all got to come along and just do the same thing. Our God's so much bigger than that. He can cope with all of us being our individual selves and looking nothing like one another. It doesn't faze him at all. So if that's how God views us, perhaps that's an idea of how we need to view one another. And I often think about, um, you see these nature programs sometimes, and and this phrase about biodiversity, and the mark of a healthy environment is how many different species there are in there. And so if you hear about a, a part of the Amazon jungle, say, and it's got zillions of plants and trees and insects and birds and animals, and that notion of lots and lots of different species all living in the same environment, and that's a marker of a healthy environment, how much more in the kingdom of God would we say that a healthy environment looks like a lot of diversity? It looks like a lot of different things going on all at the same time. But just thinking about um, the, the natural world, we talk about ecosystems, and that's where everything is connected to everything else. It's not just different things happening in different places. You know, insects get eaten by birds and birds get eaten by animals. You know, you can take that too far. But um, there's that notion that everything is connected, everything's dependent on one another. There's a connection in there. And that, as I say, is a marker of how we can be different but be connected. And that is a place where freedom, um, freedom will happen. And, and freedom's an interesting thing, isn't it? If, if we sort of all conform and there's not much freedom, there's actually little diversity. We're all pretty much become identicates of one another. But the more freedom there is in an environment, the more difference seems to come up. And that's often where the challenge is, isn't it? That's why we start to get a bit scared. And it's just like grace. 
Paul said about grace, you know, sin abounds and grace abounds more. If there's a, an atmosphere of grace, suddenly you find things popping up which in a rule-based society probably wouldn't pop up because um, people know to keep their heads down and, and keep quiet and keep it all hidden. But suddenly if there's lots of grace, then things start to emerge that perhaps wouldn't emerge. And so just like grace could be a reason why um, sin abounds more, um, but in freedom it's definitely an area where diversity abounds more. Okay, so that's a sort of set in the scene, and we're going to pull in on some of these verses a bit later on. But I'd love to read a story, if that's okay, from 1 Samuel 25. And this is a story about David um, and Nabal and his wife, Abigail. And to set the scene, David um, had been Saul's, um, in, in Saul's ranks in his army. He was one of the servants um, for Saul. And yet Saul was getting jealous, started throwing spears. It wasn't a great environment to hang around. So David fled to the desert. And there he was with all the disaffected men, the, the dropouts and the people who were the debtors, people who couldn't get along in society, and they all gathered to David. So he had these 600 men plus their, their families in the desert. Um, and this is the, the scene for our story here. So if it's okay. So 1 Samuel 25. Don't worry, I'm reading it from the, the other translation anyway. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his house in Ramah. Then David arose and went to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man of Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of this man was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful but the man was harsh and badly behaved. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was sheep shearing. So David sent 10 young men and said to the young men, go to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Thus you shall greet him, peace be to you and peace be to your house, peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did no harm to them. They missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have to hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to the men who come from I don't know where. So David's young men turned away and came back and told all this to David. And David said to them, Every man, strap on your sword. Every man, come with me. And they strapped on their swords, and about 400 of them went with David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Then one of the young men told Abigail's, um, Nabal's wife, Abigail, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them, Yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm. We did not miss anything while we were in the fields, as long as they were with us. They were a wall to us both night and day, all the while we were there keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider this, for harm is determined against our master and all his house. He is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves, just happened to have in a cupboard, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, and five sears of parched grain, hundred clusters of raisins, two hundred cakes of figs, 
laid them on donkeys, and said to a young man, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. Now David said, Surely in vain I've guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed and all that belonged to him, and he's returned for me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by the morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried, got down from the donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet. On me alone, my Lord, let this guilt lie. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal means foolish or folly. But I, your servant, didn't see the young men whom my Lord sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek you to do evil um, be as Nabal. Now let this present that your servant has brought be given to young men who follow the Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles for the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who've kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who's restrained me from hurting you, unless you'd hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there would not have been one man left to Nabal. Then David received from her hand what she brought and said, Go in peace to your house, see if I have obeyed your voice and granted your permission. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was still holding a feast in his house, a feast of a king, and his heart was merry, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of him, his wife told him all these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. That's quite a... Quite a story, and it, it's sometimes you think, oh, I'll just skip over the story and just get to the, the, the verses, but there's something about hearing the whole thing, isn't there? And, and as I read this and I was reflecting on it, there's so many different elements I wanted to pick out that I think can be helpful as we look at what does it mean to have honor amongst us. <coughs> Excuse me. So Nabal, he was actually a hardworking man. You know, we can have all this you know, rough and brutish and what have you, but he clearly had done very well. You know, he'd got thousands of sheep and goats, um, and he was quite a hard man. But what was characteristic about him is he didn't value someone whose skill set was different to his. He just thought, good men, just do as they're told, you know, raise the sheep and, and get on with life. And so what a soldier was doing, prancing around the wilderness, who knows what they get up to, I don't know where he's come from. So he didn't value... David's skill set. 
And not only did he not value him, he actually took offense of David and <clears throat> excuse me, reacted with the rules. He said, servants who leave their masters should be punished. So he had one mindset that servants leaving masters is bad, bad things deserve punishment. And he didn't discern anything about perhaps why David had left his master, what the situation was, and what actually was the good that he was doing. So he didn't discern what was right in the moment. He just reacted from his assumption. And he also attacked David's identity. Who is this David? Even though he then went on to say the son of Jesse. You know, so clearly he did know who David was. Um, but he was very dismissive about David. So there clearly was no honor expressed there. He did not value David at all. And then we get to David. David reacted out of this offense, and his response was to go on the attack. He was falsely accused. Nabal was wrong to say that he was a disloyal servant. David had gone again and again and again to try and prove his loyalty to Saul. At the risk of his own life, it's just how many spears can you cope with before you get the message that it's not safe to hang around here. So he was falsely accused. And also, he just Nabal had misunderstood what David was doing, the good. His servants could see it, that we lost nothing while these guys were around us. But Nabal didn't do that. He misunderstood. And David again was misunderstood. So Saul had misunderstood him, and now Nabal was misunderstanding him. And just none of them had bothered to find out why was David doing what he was doing. But his response then was to react and to try and right this wrong himself. So David wasn't expressing any honor either. Fortunately, there was a discerning servant who ran and found the good lady of the house. Unfortunately, she was very discerning as well and acted very, very promptly. And she went to correct the wrong that both these men were doing and to replace it with honor. And when Abigail found David, she can just imagine that David is an angry man, hurt, upset, and probably hungry. This, this was a time when he was hoping for a good feed. And, and the idea of sharing is it was a time of celebration. It was marking that. So that's why Nabal was getting drunk with his men. And it was that idea of a festival that you share, it with, you share the good thing with those around it. So he had a reasonable assumption that he might get a good feed. So he was probably hungry. He was definitely angry. And he had four guy, 400 guys, all with swords, all marching you know, fast-paced towards this chap. And there's a woman on a donkey with a few servants around her. You know, that's not a safe place to be, really, is it? Um, but he did stop and he did listen. And Abigail went on. And it's amazing when you look at what Abigail did. She reminded David of who he was. She spoke into his identity. She said that this is who you are. And more than just this is who you are, this are the promises of God over you. And she spoke into the God is going to look after you. God's going to keep you in the bundle of the living is one of those phrases. And God's going to deal with your enemies for you. But also where your future is going. She's speaking into his, you will be a prince in Israel. So she spoke very, very strongly and clearly, reminding David about who he was, what God was doing to protect him, but also where God was taking him. And she got right to the heart of the matter that you're going to change your behavior, not because of a right or wrong in this situation. She didn't even look at whether there was a right or wrong in that situation. She went straight to the identity that was the real issue. And, and then she, she gave them food. And I think they probably got a better feed from Abigail than they might have got from, from Nabal. Um, that's just my suspicion. 
And then David, good old David. So clearly all pent up, so much so that he's going to, you know, commit murder. And this strange random woman comes, you know, with some donkeys and some food. Yeah, great, but we're still going to... No, he stopped and he listened and he heard everything that, he said, uh, that she said. And he responded really well. And verse 33 is, is such a, a key verse there that David recognized. So Abigail actually said this and David recognized that if he'd gone on the defensive himself, if he'd gone to right his own wrong, that in itself was a sin. That God's heart is that even if we are wrong, that it's not ours to put that wrong right. That by living in, um, in God's will, that we can look to God to be our justice for us. And it's not our place to right our own wrongs. So bringing salvation for ourselves, as it says, is, is sin in God's eyes. And that's where mistakes happen when we try and write things as we see them. And then we know that God vindicated David. Um, and it is a bit tragic that, you know, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of blood, guts, and gore. And vindication means someone died. And Nabal, um, it said his heart died within him. So in medical terms, he had a heart attack. And, uh, and he turned to stone, so probably had a stroke. So there you go. Um, and as happens when you have a heart attack and a stroke and there's no intensive care around, um, you die a short while later. So, you know, it was pretty tragic but pretty definitive that there was a judgment. And it probably wasn't just that one thing. This probably was a reflection on all of Nabel's life leading up to that. Sorry, did you like that, Jen? <laughs> um, so David then gets the great response. So by responding out of honor and not self-defense, he avoided sin. He got a better feed than he might have done. And in the end, Abigail came to him, so he gets a beautiful and discerning wife. If that's not a good reason to, uh, to have a culture of honor, what is? So uh, I just love these stories. You can pull out so much, can't you? You just need to keep reading your Bible and ask God to give you a Holy Ghost imagination as you look at things. So I'm going to just pull a few things together and, uh, and see what we can learn in principles from this. As I was emphasizing, um, the main thing was about identity. Everything flows from who we are. And when Abigail reminded David of who he was, she didn't deal at all with the issue or the problem that clearly was a fault. But she went straight to the heart of the matter. This is who you are. And everything flows from who we are. And if you understand well who we are and who the other person is, that can go a long way to avoiding making mistakes and mess-ups. But who am I? Do I really know who I am? We all think we know who we are, and we all think we know, you know what we're like, but how aware are we of what we're really like and the effect we have on one another? And I've heard about this analogy of the hula hoop, and it's going to bring some, some big hoops and what have you, but, uh, but I didn't quite get around to it, or I just think I couldn't really hold the hoop and my pad and talk as well. So, um, so just imagine, use your imagination, a big hoop around you, and inside that hoop is you. That's the true you. And that's actually the you as God sees you. And very often it's the you that you think everybody else sees. But the hoop around is all your behaviors, all your defensive mechanisms, all your prejudices. It's very often it's the first thing that people bump into. And so you're there with your big hoop and you bump into people and they react. I think, what's the problem? What's the problem with you? You know, clearly I'm fine because I know what I'm like on the inside but you're unaware of your hoop, you're unaware of the effects that you've had on other people. And it's not just that we're unaware, sometimes we choose to project, we choose to you know, hide inside perhaps what we've learnt as the acceptable behaviour 
perhaps we don't feel confident to let the true us come out, so we've just got this, this persona or this you know, set of behaviors around us, and, and we only feel safe, perhaps we're a bit insecure or fearful, or we think, you know, how am I going to be received if you really knew what I was like? And so we come with these hoop of behaviors, these hoop of attitudes and, and what have you. And if that's my hoop reacts into your hoop, then there's no connection. And if I don't see what's happening inside your hoop, and I just react to the thing that's first presented to me, we're never going to get a good connection, and we're always just going to be pinging off one another. And God's so good at doing this, and I love the story of Gideon for lots of reasons. But if you think about the story of Gideon, they, he was a young man in a small family, in a small tribe of a nation that was being oppressed. And the Midianites were constantly coming in and evading, and if ever any crops came, they'd take the crops. If they'd raised any sheep, they'd steal the sheep. So it was a pretty bad scene. And so Gideon's solution was to hide in a wine press and thresh the wheat so that he could do it hidden. And a wine press isn't ideal for, pressing, for threshing wheat, but at least he thought he might get some wheat at the end of it rather than it being stolen. So he was cowering, hiding, not thinking greatly of himself. He didn't have a good self-image. The angel of the Lord comes along and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And the angel, God's um, voice in there, was straight to the heart of matter. No, this is who you are. Not what your behavior says, not what the environment might say, but this is who you are. And so our challenge is to discern correctly what is behavior that might not be great and might be, you know, might actually be causing an offense. And what is the person inside that and how well do we allow ourselves to be seen and how well do we see into one another? And so identity is really important. We've been looking at that. Because I think this is the modern lie of individualism, that we exist in a vacuum. That no, we influence people whether we mean to or not, whether we like it or not. Good influences and bad influences, but we are not on our own. We are all connected in one way or another. And the more, the more quickly we realize that, and the more quickly we line up with that, the fewer problems we're going to get. Um, but it is that, you know, seeing people as God sees them and choosing to respond through identity and not be quick to react to behaviors. And that, that is a challenge, because behaviors can be pretty rubbish, and people can just do the same thing again and again. And so we're going to be looking over these next few weeks about some of the tools, some of the ways we can manage behaviors, but not be reacting and not missing the point that this is about an individual. And so my second point to emphasize is about diversity. This, as I said earlier, that we are all different. And, you know, you don't need to do any sort of discerning at all to realize that's, that's very true. And uh, I think it's such a shame when there's this illusion of safety if we all just conform. If you find people like you, you know, and you, you all agree with what's the, the best way to behave, then everything's going to be okay, isn't it? No, 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 it will not be. It's just, well, it's death, it's boring. Who wants to be around that sort of boring gray? But also, it's just never going to happen. But difference is scary. When people are different to you and you don't understand, it can trigger fear. And we've got to recognize that and deal with that. That there's this fear that if there's too much difference, how can we all be together when we're so different? And there's that worry. And yes, there's a challenge in there. Um, but I was really struck by what Jesus said. Um, it's one of the verses in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. And, and that's a real challenge to us, isn't it? That if we just look for people like us and we feel comfortable with people like us, actually we're missing the point of the kingdom of God. And that's quite a challenge, isn't it? So feeling different doesn't mean I'm wrong. Being different doesn't mean I'm wrong. You being different doesn't mean that you're wrong. But if I stand secure in who God's made me to be and you stand secure in how God's made you to be and we hold on to one another and we find a way of connection, my contention is, is that that is where something wonderful happens. David Bell brought a, a picture to the leaders about 18 months ago, it's really helpful, uh, of a suspension bridge. And it was a bridge over a wide river. And you could imagine a sort of tower on one side, tower on the other side, and the cable between the two. And he said that the, the cable has a lot of tension in it. And there's a tension between these two poles that are holding them together. And actually, the wider the span of the bridge and the greater the load, the more tension is needed. So for things to carry, it actually needs a level of tension, yet we get frightened of tension. But David's picture is showing us that tension was necessary. And just thinking of a big uh, suspension bridge, it's not just one cable, it's multiple strands of cable all bound and woven together. And so each individual cable standing alongside other cables, the load is shared and everyone carries. And that's where the strength comes. And it might look that the two sides of the bridge are pulling in opposite directions, but they've got a common purpose. And so those differences that are well connected become a means of carrying, become a means of connecting where something wouldn't have happened before. And so David went on to explain that in the fourth road bridge there was um, some roadworks, some repair works done because corrosion had started to get into the cables and it started to degrade, which would lead to fracture and breakup. And so not only was the corrosion dealt with, but instruments were put into the cable bundles to keep the atmosphere healthy so that corrosion wouldn't develop. And so that notion that we've got to be very quick to, that, to deal with any corrosion in our connections, but also to create a healthy culture where not only does the corrosion that's been there get dealt with, but there's no environment that would allow corrosion to creep in in the future. And so really what could be seen as polar opposites actually then becomes a means of strength, of carrying, and of connecting where it wouldn't connect before. And the saddest thing, if you could think of a bridge where there's no connection, is it's just two stone pillars on either sides of a bank with gulfs in between. Or even worse, if you think about compliance, is no, you, you need to come over here, you need to be like me. Well, then you've got two pillars on the same side of the bank and there's still nothing going across the river. So neither of those is a good option. So being different, but being connected is the key. And responding well to difference is a challenge. It needs discernment. Nabal didn't discern that this man who's totally different than him, this man who lived by the sword, was actually complementing a man who lived with sheep. And as I said, I'm a GP. I, I, uh, I see people all day, every day, and one of the joys of my, my job is the variety. Everyone's different. So you can imagine people come with a sore throat, and if you just said, oh, I know what to do with sore throats, you know, dot, 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 that, that would be, you know, not being a doctor. But my job is to, to listen, to ask good questions, to discern and understand, why is this bothering you? And is it because it's a young mum and she's got no time to be ill, she's got kids to look after, a house to run, 
and what have you. She cannot afford the time. You know, someone's at risk of losing their job because they've been off so many times already. There's anxiety coming in to the situation. Is it because someone's lost their dad through cancer? And, and so these symptoms, I, I know there's something wrong. So there's a discerning. You deal with everyone differently, even though superficially it might look the same. But what's going on here? What's behind this behavior? What's behind this problem? And if you don't get to that point, then you're not being a good doctor. And if we don't get to that point, we're actually missing what's going on, and you don't get, you don't get the connection. So discerning behind what's presented to you, discerning what's, the different, what's going on here, and, and why is this behavior happening is a key to understanding difference and then to be able to connect well with it. And the goal of all of this is freedom. And freedom really is a big deal. If you take away freedom, that's called a prison. Um, so we don't want a prison, we want freedom. But freedom does need to be protected. Freedom is not a free-for-all. And our society protects freedom by a system of rules. And then for people who break the rules, um, there's punishment. And there are many who do use rules to protect an environment. And, and that can bring a measure of safety. It can feel a bit safe. You, you actually know what's going on, and you just need to know the rule, do the rule, end of story. And the opposite of not having rules, of it actually needs more of you. You have to think. That means a bit of work. You have to discern. You have to ask the Holy Spirit. You have to see if, is what's happening today the same as what happened last week? Not necessarily. Perhaps I need to ask God for his fresh Rima word as what's the word in this moment that might be different to what the word was in that moment. So rules give the superficial safety and comfort, but actually don't produce freedom. Rules just tackle behavior without changing hearts. They control an environment and, as I say, produce that illusion of safety. But what they really do is produce conformity. They stifle diversity. They stifle creativity. So we all love the idea of no rules, but no rules not becoming chaos needs a dis different system of management. Because other people's sin is a problem. People do mess up. I mess up. We do things that we shouldn't have done or we do things with unintended consequences. So if we're not going to go down the route of offense, and if you think about the justice system, people who do wrong, it is offensive, they become offenders. If you look at this is a problem, then once you've done that, this offense then needs a punishment. But if we view this from the context of freedom, then I'm less worried about the behavior and I'm more concerned about the connection. I'm more concerned about how can I help this brother, sister be the best person that they are? What part is my role in connecting well, in loving well, in honoring well, and seeing them grow in their God-likeness, in their Christ-likeness? And we do get worried about other people's sin. And I think it's partly for this fear of separation. If you carry on like that and that's not dealt with, then what's going to be the consequences? And the thought of everything falling apart does create a lot of anxiety. But if we recognize that responding out of love and not fear, responding for the purpose of connection and not, not uh, punishing behavior, then that's going to be a lot better. We have to tackle disruptive behavior. We're going to you know, look at how we do that. How do you manage yourself in freedom? But these verses from Galatians 5, um, verses 13 and 14 that I read before, I'll read them again. You were called for freedom, brothers, but don't lose your, use your freedom as an opportunity for flesh or selfishness, but through love serve one another, 
for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this idea that we would regulate ourselves based on love and not fear, that become aware of the effects I have on those people around me and I choose to manage myself. I'm the one who does the dealing with me, not being dealt with by somebody else. And if you do need help, then ask for help. Ask Holy Spirit, you know, show me, test me and know me, see if there's any anxious way within me. Ask good questions, ask people around you. How do I, you know, what am I like? Am I, you know, rubbing you up the wrong way somehow? Um, well, Nick, we really didn't know quite how to tell you. Because um, we, we shy away from confrontation because the words confrontation and conflict, that's what you use for battles and war zones, isn't it? But good confrontation actually means bringing something into the light. It actually means we need to talk about this. Hiding it under the carpet is not an option. But it's not hallmarked by aggression and punishment. It's hallmarked by gentleness, by love, by being kind. And there's a lot you can do with kindness and gentleness that actually gets through where aggression and, and you know, the upfront aggressive confrontation doesn't. And really, it's, it's all about asking questions. So as I say, my job as a GP is asking, trying to find behind. We, we have this um, ideas, concerns, and expectations. So the, the idea is that, you know, what are you thinking about? What was your thoughts about this? Tell me a bit more. Help me understand. Uh, what were you really concerned about when this happened? And what were you hoping? What would you need? What were you hoping could be the outcome? And asking questions behind what actually has happened is a good way of finding out more. And the goal of good confrontation is a closer connection, not compliance with the rules. So just in summary, God calls us to love one another. This is mutual, this is together, this is me and you. Honor means to value, highly esteem, admire, defer to, think highly of, believe the best of. And that involves seeing people as they truly are, not what makes me comfortable or not what their behaviors might suggest. And it is also not being put off by behavior that doesn't match identity. So you might know, come on, you're still doing this, and someone can repeatedly do that. Changing who you are doesn't happen just, oh, right, you know, oh, I won't do that. And then sometimes these things are deeply ingrained, and love is not giving up on someone, even if they're taking a time to make a change. Um, but it is about showing value, respect, working to strengthen the connection between us. Deal with corrosion. It's not okay to just ignore stuff. Oh, no, I can't go there. It's just too much hassle. They won't listen to me anyway. Now, if we leave these incidents undealt with, it will corrode our relationships and it will cause problems. When we come to carry a load down the line, we find that there isn't the strength of connection there that we thought. Um, as I say, healthy connection is motivated by love, characterized by kindness, gentleness, self-control, and this verse from Romans 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. I just thought, you know, why do we start to play games? You know, ask God to, to help you. What about spot the treasure? You know, what about looking for someone and starting each time you meet with someone? Say, God, show me, what, what's, what's some, you know, treasure in this person that perhaps I haven't seen before? And you start to ask for a Holy Spirit imagination and insight that you can see the good in someone and then, you know, bless them with, with telling them that and definitely respond to them like that. Um, Bill Johnson said, I don't know if I'm quoting him accurately, but sometimes the very thing you need, God hides inside the person who offends you the most. Now there's a thought, isn't it? That perhaps the treasure that you're looking for 
isn't that person who winds you up all the time. And if you just reject them because they're, you know, whatever, then you're missing out the good thing that God has got for you. One another. Let's just one another. Let's look out for one another. We are all connected, and let's make that a good connection. There are so many one another's in, in the Bible. And this is the culture of honor. This is where God chooses to dwell. This is where the miraculous will happen. The kingdom of heaven will advance. Lives will be transformed. It will be good to be in an atmosphere where you know, everyone thinks the best of one another. But let's not limit our, our mindset or expectation to just being a happy club where everyone gets on. No, we're much, much more than that. Our significance, even as we're saying in, in worship, our significance and the impact in the city. But it comes from people seeing love expressed in a diverse community, much more diverse than we are at the moment. You know, we're going to have a lot more people come in. And a lot of them won't be easy to live alongside. You know, I'm not easy to live alongside. You know, we, we can all just have this assumption, well, I'm perfect, you lot just need to get your act together. But, you know, hello, come on, let's wake up. You know, we're going to have a much more diverse society. And if that's going to be the case, and we're not going to fall apart and just have that sort of church over there and that sort of church over here, then this is going to demand something of us. But there's a huge prize. So let's learn these tools. Let's do what we need to do to strengthen our connections, to call on God for grace, for wisdom, and for connection.